Hey, as you grab a seat this morning, let me just kind of fill you in if you're new to Community Church and, and think, um, oh great, I came to church and they're going to talk about sex again. Um, <laughs> What we're doing, we're moving our way through the book of Corinthians. And as we get to this part in Corinthians, as it turns out, their culture, which was so much like ours, uh, had an issue with, with the fact that their sexual ethic, their eating ethic, their social ethic were corrupted from God's way of doing things. And so Paul was challenging them and trying to get them to turn back to God's way of doing things. And, and really, friends and neighbors, what they were struggling with is what we're struggling with. And so while the nuances may be slightly different, we like to say this is a study in First Americans as much as it is a study in First Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you, join me in First Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9 today. And uh, we're going to be talking about intimacy and devotion God's way. And so we're going to contrast this a bit with culture's way. Here's, here's what we believe as a people. We believe that the Bible is the holy and infallible word of God. We believe that all truth that can be known can be found right here. And we call that sola scriptura. What that basically means is that this is the sole source of truth and all truth can be found in here. And if it's true, it's going to be in here. And if it's not true, it's going to contrast with what scripture has to say. So we want to come back and make sure that what we're studying is God's way of doing things and then bring that truth to our culture and struggle with how do we love God and love people and bring truth into culture without becoming overly judgmental or overly permissive. We have to find that, that, that place where God's called us to be his hands and his feet at this place at this time. And so that's what we're going to be doing. And today, um, as it turns out, we're going to be talking about sex again. Woo-hoo. So we had a, a visitor here was here in the first hour and it's her third visit to the church. And she says, I love this church because you guys preach on sex all the time. And I had to assure her that that's only right now and we don't do that every week. And she said she wouldn't be back. Okay. So this next picture, I need to apologize. When I was making the slides, I was also downloading some pictures I liked for some little architectural things that we wanted to do. So the picture is in the wrong spot. I'm going to apologize, but the slide talks about the information we need to know. So everybody ooh and ah, how cool the stairs are. I know they're awesome, but that's not what the picture is about. Okay. In chapters one through six of Corinthians, here's what the apostle Paul is doing. He's dealing with these matters of black letters on white page. This is what the law of God, this is what God has to say. And you've noticed if you were in Corinthians during this time, Paul's kind of hard on the Corinthians. Did you pick up on that? He, he doesn't really pull a lot of punches. He just kind of bam, and he lays it down. I know, right? But now here's what's going to happen. Paul is going to shift into this, into this point right now, and he's going to be a bit more um, uh, spiritual, He's going to be more encouraging. He's going to lift some standards and challenge the people, not with hard rules and laws, but encouraging them as God's way of doing things is far and away and above your way of doing things. And if we can do things God's way, what it means is that this human organism, this mechanism that we live in is going to be happier. It's going to be more fulfilled. Our relationships are going to be better because we're doing things according to the design of our own creator. And that's what Paul is going to be challenging them. Now, the other thing I want you to be looking for as, as, you're, as, as we're moving through this passage today, I want you to hear that Paul is about to unlock some giant doors for women. If you pay attention to things like theology or, or how people talk about religion today, here's something I bet you've heard. You've heard things like, um, Paul is a misogynist. You know, Christianity suppresses women. Have you, have you heard this? Is this, is this? Okay, this is not new to you. The women are all like, mm-hmm. The guys are like, what are you talking about? I've never heard that before. So what we want to do is be sensitive to the fact that the Corinthian culture in the first century 
is one where women are largely suppressed and repressed in the entirety of the East, even in Rome and Greece. Women did not have equal rights and abilities and freedoms that men did. Paul is about to unlock that kind of oppression and free women from that. And so I would encourage you to think this way. The way we look at Paul and Christianity might be a bit backwards and unfair. It might be pejorative voices or the loud voices when Scripture would beg you to hear what Paul is doing and what Jesus has done and what Scripture has done to liberate and to create equality and mutual responsibility amongst spouses and men and women. So be listening for that. That's what we're going to journey through today. Okay, so for an outline, one, two, three, if you've got your note page, you'll write your one, your two, your three, your A, B, C, your D. Uh, number one, we're going to talk about some context because if we don't have context, we try to read our own context into it or our own American point of view, and you're going to get confused and kind of kind of make a fool of yourself. So let's not do that. Secondly, we want to look at what low standards are as compared to high godly standards. And then thirdly, we'll close fairly briefly um, looking at the fact that this is a spiritual matter. We, it, it may be oriented around uh, marital relationships and sexual relationships, but really this is, this, is a, this is a spiritual matter, and that's what we're going to come to. So let's get started here. Number one, uh, how do we get some context? Uh, now for the matters you wrote about. Here's what I'm going to bet. Most of you have read this passage of Scripture, if, if you've read this passage of Scripture, maybe that's an assumption, um, and, you, and you've read it, and they, you, you thought maybe this was Paul saying what the Corinthians were saying. So I want to give you some context. Paul has started a church in Corinth, and then he's, he's left and gone to start other churches. This church in Corinth has had some issues, some questions that have come up, real challenges, things that are really working at their heart, causing tension within their culture as they try to make Christianity or the way mesh with their Roman Greco-Corinthian culture. And so they write a letter back to the apostle, and it's got some questions and some challenges, and they're going to use some phrases. And some of these phrases are things that we say it all the time, or the Jews have said it to us, or or we think you have said this, or this might be something you would say. And they write this letter back to Paul. And so Paul is going to now react and respond to some of their problems. But it's neat, because remember how I told you he's going to shift from being black and white hammering it down to starting to encourage and, and, and to share some wisdom about how to live life? Remember how I told you how that's going to go? Here's how you know everything has shifted. Paul starts the sentence with this word, now. That's a way of saying, okay, everything before put a period on it, settle. Now, let me engage something from your letter. So we have this sequitur that happens right here. He says, now, in response to the matters you wrote about, quote, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex, end quote. Because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman should have sexual relations with her husband. Paul is going to say, you've said this phrase. This was what you threw back to me. And Paul's going to go, I'm not going to agree with you on this. What you're saying is this idea that's inconsistent with the whole of Scripture, but I'm not going to say your phrase is entirely wrong, but the way that you're using it is inconsistent with the lifestyle I would encourage you to begin to embrace. So Paul's going to use that. He's also going to use another phrase. He's going to say, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. And so both of these statements, when they're made, are, um, shall we say, um, uh, subject for skepticism. And so you may have a look a lot like our, our illustration lady here. Paul is quoting them, but also Paul is going to engage the hearts of the Corinthians, not just the minds with their hearts, friends. And he's going to ask them to love and submit to their spouses. This is the undercurrent of all of it, because God has loved you, 
and given himself and surrendered himself for you. Jesus came, became man, became human, all right? Surrendered himself to all the things that human beings have, have to go through every day. And he did that out of love for you as a person. And since he surrendered himself to you, he's asking that in our marriages, we start to see one another in that same sense of, of surrendering to one another, this submission to and for one another out of an act of genuine love. So just for a second, think with me, what would it be like in the United States today if all of us who are in marriage relationships, or those of you who are looking forward to marriage relationships one day, you know who you are, right? You have a pulse. And, and so you're, you're thinking about this and you're saying, um, I would hope that in my marriage relationship, my spouse would love me as much as I love them, and maybe a little more. <laughs> and, and I would hope that my spouse would, would respect me and honor me and treat me with, with selflessness the same way I want to give back to them. But if you look at your marriages right now, regardless of this matter of sexuality, I just want you to think about your marriage right now. What if your spouse right now treated you the way you treat your spouse? What if their internal dialogue and value system was exactly like yours? What if the selfishness that you live with from time to time, the self-righteousness that you conduct your lifestyle with from time to time, was exactly what your spouse gave back to you all the time? Do you understand that marriage, marriage is this 100% surrender one to the other all the time? It's not 50-50, it's 100-100. And when we do that, when we're completely surrendered, we can have these things like trust, and intimacy and hope in one another. This was God's plan for marriage, but the Corinthians were not experiencing that. This is why Paul was writing, and this is why he has to say what he has to say. So what was a Greco-Roman marriage like? All right, here's what it looks like. In their day and age, 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East, in this place and time, at the edge of Roman and, and, and Eastern societies, contracts were really what marriages were based on. And these contracts were fairly one-sided, and they were fairly male or patronistic. And here's how it kind of went. Society had structures, okay? And, and, and I don't know exactly what all those structures were, but let's imagine for a second that there's kind of like A class, B class, C class, D class, E class, right? You got your classes of society. E's at the bottom, A at the top. And so let's imagine in this society that you have a daughter and, and you've got a daughter in your home, okay? And so you, you would like for your daughter and her children to be able to have it better than you did. And so what you try to do is this. You try to make sure that you marry your, your, your D-class daughter to an A-class husband. Because then by doing so, her children would have all the A-class rights and opportunities in society, and your daughter would be able to live a little bit better. And if you could do that, it would be better for her. And so you arrange a marriage by giving to or surrendering some of your rights or responsibilities or properties to an A-class family in order for your daughter to marry up. This would be a typical narrative in a Greco-Roman household. Sound great? No, because a couple of things can happen. Misery <laughs> or usury. There's the, there's the outside chance that there could be happiness, but most of the time that's not what their marriages were based on. Another thing about Roman, Greco-Roman marriages, it indicated and generally led to emancipation for women. Now, the smart people among you, like Maggie, have already figured out the difference between emancipation and emancipation, right? You got it? You with me? There you go. Emancipation essentially means this. You have surrendered your rights, 
and you have now become, in essence, property of the husband. Sound great, ladies? Loving it? No? Oh, okay. And so here's, here's what's happening. Paul is saying, this system <laughs> that you're hoping for in, in your Greco-Roman culture, this is not God's plan for you. This is a human design plan, and it's less than God's perfect plan. Let's keep moving, though. Concordia was a top priority. Concordia basically means that in the marriage, there's at least you're getting along, there's harmony. It doesn't mean you have to be in agreement or even love one another. It just means that you're not at each other's throats. So this idea of concordia was their top priority. Love was not a priority, and amorous extramarital relationships were downright expected in most circles. It means that, as weird as this sounds, the, the sexual intimacy between husband and wife was not really a value that they had. Instead, the values would be that they had concordia or harmony in the home and that those needs of sexuality would be met outside of the marriage for the most part and that you could work with temple prostitutes or regular prostitutes or, or hire or buy a slave that they could serve that role in your life, but that marital intimacy was not really a high value. What? But this is what was happening in Corinth. Excuse me. So because of that, Paul writes into the culture to say, I'm going to show you a better way. What you're doing is inconsistent with God's way, Corinthians, and I would say, by extension, Americans. The way that we're trying to, to do sexuality and marriage and marriage roles and our ideas here, they're not God's way. They're some other cultural society's way. And if you do it like that, you're not going to be happy you're not going to be as fulfilled as you could be. So Paul is going to challenge this, and some of the ways he's going to challenge that in particularly have to do with, the, with these matters of, um, of partners in the relationship. Now, I'm not advocating being partners instead of being married. Don't, don't throw that at me, because some people did in the first service. But, but here's what he's saying. Your marriage is a partnership, okay, between the two of you. But let, me, let me clarify that. We, we allow lots of dialogue here at Community Church, so people have the freedom to challenge me on things afterwards. That's perfectly fine. Um, I'm not saying partnerships instead of marriages. That's all I'm saying. I'm not ripping on the folks in the first service, even though you're smarter and better looking in this service. So what Paul is saying is that this partnership that you engage in when, when you're married means that both of you are coming together as equals, not as a superior and an inferior. You're coming together like this, equal under the lordship and headship of Jesus. So if you can picture a cross that comes down with this vertical beam and then there's this horizontal beam, we're coming together in this marriage relationship Two sinners saved by grace on equal ground, one to another, 100%, 100%, under the authority and submission of Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian marriage begins like. And some of you right now are going, what? That, that can't be, but I'm, I'm smarter than him. No, no, that's not what we're talking about. What we're saying is that your wills, uh, your rights, you're surrendering to one another even as you surrender to Jesus. And so this idea that Paul introduces is revolutionary. Second, um, Paul is going to introduce this Christian concept that celibacy and closed marriages, while bizarre to, to Corinthian ears, are far closer to God's design than what they had any imagination for. You hear me on that? So he's saying, hey, listen, this idea of your marriages where you're, you're running around and prostituting yourself all over the place, you, that's got to stop. That's not God's plan for you. And in fact, God's plan may be, as we see in verses 8 and 9, that for a very small and select few of you or those of you who can't control your minds and selves, celibacy might be your call. And that is an incredibly difficult thing for them to hear. And it might be for some of us today. 
that, that where you are in your relationship with God means you're not ready for marriage. It may mean that where you are in, in your, um, <clears throat> your sexual appetite or your thought process is so inconsistent with God's way. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Allergy season, right? Where you are maybe so inconsistent with God's plan for you that celibacy is what God's calling to you, you for, for a time or for permanence. And so these are messages the Corinthians are hearing and going, what are you talking about? No, life is about pleasure and making me happy. That's why we live, and this is where the contrast is with Paul. Now, are we tracking so far? I'm setting you the context for why Paul is writing what he's writing and how he's writing it to the Corinthians. So that's what we've looked at. This is what's going on in Corinth, and this is why Paul is about to engage them. And here's where he's going to engage first. He's going to say, he's going to illustrate for them that there's a low standard by which you are living, and there's a high standard by which God is calling you or to which God is calling you. I say and I wish. These are, these are words you hear Paul saying there in, 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 uh, in verses 5 through 9. I say and I wish. Rather than saying, God hath said, black and white, hard line, bang, beat you over the head law. He's saying, I'm telling you and I wish for you. As a person in authority, as God's apostle, this is what I want for you. And Paul is now going to challenge them to live a life more godly. And that's our starting point. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Paul is going to be talking in the context of worship uh, to, to the Romans and vice versa to the Corinthians that the way that you live your life is a demonstration of worship or worship to God. It's your way of saying, your way is above my way, and I choose to follow yours. And so this is that higher expectation rather than culture and society's low expectation. Now, illustratively, we talked about some of the things that you could expect from a Corinthian marriage. It would almost start with status and patronage. Uh, women's, women would manage the house and servants, and men would basically make the money and live life and culture and society, and women would stay home. Hmm. Women obeyed the commands of the husband like a, a good dog, I suppose. Women needed to produce kids. If you didn't have kids, then the husband may go, what good are you to me? Go away. Go back to your father. Nobody wants you. Uh, the man was the manus or the hand of the family under whom everyone else was found in submission or belonging. Wow. What a great way to live. Dowries were the woman's insurance policy. So a family would provide a dowry to a wife when she went to a husband. This is kind of her insurance policy that the husband would keep her. Not that he would love her, just that he would keep her. Because if he gave up the wife, he'd have to give back the dowry, right? Or he'd be found in contempt and he could be drawn into court. So this was her security blanket. Well, what happens if her family that she came from doesn't have a lot of money? Where's her security? Wow, this is a broken system. Men and women alike indulge in sexual activity outside, often loveless marriages. This is what you could expect from a Corinthian marriage. But here's what you could expect from a Christian marriage. Here's what I want you to hear me on, church. This is a higher standard, a standard all of us would say is kind of an absolute minimum. And it would be both partners are loving Jesus and each other. In, in Corinthians, sorry, Ephesians 9, this is where Paul is challenging them to love one another even as you love your Lord Jesus Christ. Woman and man submit to one another sacrificially. Sexual faithfulness is absolute and a source of tremendous security. Extended, fa <laughs> extended families do not rule the new home. 
Hmm, now there's an interesting one. Don't say anything right now and get in trouble with your spouse, but have any of you experienced the idea when it it comes time to how you're going to make your decisions? Maybe that mother-in-laws and father-in-laws are playing into the decision more than just you as the new couple. Anybody? How about where are we going to go for Thanksgiving this year? Which family are going to Christmas to this year? When are you going to bring me grandbabies? You know, all these sorts of things that seem to come from the outside family. But in Christian marriages, it's saying that a man leaves his woman and cleaves to his, his woman. A man leaves his mother and clings to his wife. Wow, that may be Freudian, I'm not sure. We'll have to get Diane to break that down for me later. But, but as, you're, as, you're, as a woman is leaving her mother and father's home and a man is leaving his wife, and they come together and they form this brand new home, now this home has to make decisions for itself. We draw from the legacy and the wisdom of the homes from which we came. But listen, this home is now responsible for making their own decisions. And they make those decisions, bless you, out of a 100% submission, again, bless you, submission from one another to one another. It's my mom. I'm giving her a hard time. Uh, to one another. There's this 100%, 100% submission to one another under the authority of Jesus with that vertical and horizontal cross model. This is the picture of the Christian home. Now, let me just ask you out of pure your honesty right now. Do you like the Corinthian model or do you like the Christian model a little better? How many of you, and I'm talking primarily to those of you who are teens, young women, young men, how many of you would look forward to a marriage someday where you don't really love your spouse and he or she doesn't really love you? You just got a good arrangement. But show of hands, how many of you love that idea? No? Okay, let me try again. How about those of you who are teens, young 20s, haven't gotten married yet, 50s, haven't gotten married yet, wherever it is, no judgy here, but how would you like looking forward to a marriage one day where um, your partner is sexually uh, finding gratification outside of the marriage, but they're still providing for you at home as far as the the bills and then doing the household duties? Sound good? Anybody? No? Now, see, I don't agree either. I think those are broken ideas, but they were Corinthian ideas. Now listen to me. The low standard of the Corinthian idea of marriage is what Paul is engaging in 1 Corinthians. And he's going to give them a higher standard, a better way. And he's going to say it's better, I'm going to say, for several reasons. Number one, the Christian concept of marriage is going to be better because an authority is mutually agreed upon. And contrary to Corinthian society, that authority isn't based on who's got the financial prowess. It isn't based on who's got the hand, the manus, or the rule. It's based upon what Scripture has to say. In other words, this becomes my authority. And his husband and wife were saying, what does Scripture have to say about this decision? We need to make a decision about a purchase, okay? What are some biblical principles about purchasing? Not just how my mommy and daddy did it, but what does Scripture teach us about lending and borrowing and managing our money and living within our means and honoring God with the tithe and, and, and living upon the rest? What does it tell us about that? What does it tell us about our responsibility with resources and stewardship? And this is where we seek wisdom from. What does it say about faithfulness? What does it say about, about honesty and love and joy and peace? You see, these are the things Scripture teaches into our marriage and into our life. And if we surrender to the, the authority of Jesus Christ... It means that we can feel perfectly safe surrendering to one another. That's a beautiful picture of a Christian marriage. Now, authentic love is at the core of an authentic Christian marriage, and trust is earned and held. Take a rabbit trail for just a second. When we talk about trust in marriages today, 
I don't believe that most couples today really could say, I have 100% trust with no doubt whatsoever in my spouse. Now, don't look at people around the room right now, but, but ask yourself this question. Does that sound like the American model of marriage, that both, both people in that marriage completely and totally trust one another, and without any hesitation, with, with any hesitation at all, they would trust their spouse completely at all points and all times? That doesn't sound like your typical American marriage, but can we dream for a second? Could, could we do that? Can we play with this idea? I just want you to imagine in a marriage for a second that you could completely, totally, 100%, without any reservation at all, totally trust your spouse. Totally. How safe would you feel? How secure and valued would you feel? Those of you who haven't become married yet, can I tell you, this is one of those things you've got to look for in the people that you date, that you even consider marrying someday. Because if you can't trust somebody when you're dating, finish the sentence for me. You can't trust them. I wasn't asking the married people. I'm asking the people who are not married yet. Let's try that again. All the married people are like, yeah, I can't trust them when you're married either. You know? <laughs> Dave Kircher was really loud over there. I don't know what that was about, but let, let's try this. Listen, if, if you're unmarried in the room, finish the sentence for me. If you can't trust somebody when you're dating them, you can't trust them. Okay. Now, listen, this is why learning to be trustworthy and to trust these are Christian ideals that must be a part of our marriages, must be a part of our character as Jesus followers. Because if you can trust one another completely in marriage, I promise you that point next to the bottom right there has the exclamation point. What's it say? Try it again. What's it say? Secure. Your home will be secure. Even if you don't have lots of money. Did you know you can be happy and broke? Kim and I have proved it over and over again. We nailed that one. But, but look... You, you can be happy with little, and you can be happy with much. You can also be miserable with, and miserable with, okay, so money doesn't necessarily bring you happiness, but trust and security in a marriage, listen, friends, it absolutely can. Please, please don't sacrifice that as you're looking for a spouse. And if you're already married, can I encourage you strongly, make trust the center of your relationship, trusting Jesus Christ and one another, being trustworthy and trusting your spouse. That can lead to some of the most secure homes out there. Amen, anyone? Amen. Okay, now, this is God's model and design for kids. Let me just briefly blow through this and make sure we understand this. If you've got a healthy marriage and a healthy home with trust and loving Jesus and that correct relationship with, with Christ and one another and mutual submission to one another, uh, fidelity, trustworthiness, if you live that relationship, chances are your kids are going to look at that model and realize that's what the right kind of thing looks like in marriage, and that's where their young, tender, innocent eyes are going to look out at the boys and girls that they meet in culture and society, and they're going to be looking looking for at least that. And if you, if you demonstrate in your home the opposite, the Corinthian lower standard, parents, your kids are going to be looking for low standard husbands and wives later. And they're not going to have high standard godly marriages. They will have married the low hanging fruit. And that's precisely what their home will be like. The call could not be more important to live godly marriages today. Okay. 
So that's that high standard. Uh, by the way, if you download the slides, I think we put them up most weeks. There's some fun statistics you can look at here. They're really good ones. This one will blow your mind if you look it up. Uh, but we're going to move on from here to point three and talk about the fact that this is a spiritual matter. So the spiritual aspect is crucial to the health and success of every marriage. Couples with a strong shared faith, I'll say it one more time, strong shared faith, demonstrate an advantage over those who don't have that. And um, um, yeah, so we'll stop right there. Strong shared faith is what I want to draw us to. Spirituality is at the core of all of our beings. Before, um, but before anything in our lives, we are spiritual beings. You were made to be in relationship with God. Do you realize that? <clears throat> I want you to think about this. In eternity past, just tune out of the, the slide here for a second. Let's go to eternity past for just a second. In eternity past, we have God. Okay? He's not bored. He didn't create mankind because he's like, man, I wish I had something to do. And God wasn't up there like, you know, I should create a being that will be disrespectful to me and disobey me. I need some people who think they're smarter than me because don't you love that, right? God's like, I'll create people. And so he did. And then it reaches its zenith of disrespect and thinking they're smarter with him. He created Americans. And so here we are, and God, he created us because he's born. No, no, no. God created mankind for this, to be in relationship with him. Okay? Let's say this together. I'm made to be in relationship with God. You ready? Your turn. I'm made to be in relationship with God. Okay. That's who you are. You are a spiritual being because God is spiritual, and you are too. And we are at our best when we're in a relationship with God, our living God. So, friends, it only makes sense that you're going to be happiest when that relationship with your God is secure. And it only makes sense that in your marriages, when you have a strong shared faith, you're going to be at your best. Now, let's take about this, think about those three words for just a second. Strong means it implies both wife and husband, I'm sorry, shared means that it implies both wife and husband share the same faith. I know the tension that some of you come in here with today. I, my heart breaks in a sense. It hurts for some of you who have non-believing spouses. I understand the tension that that can create in your home. Thank you for being faithful enough to live out the gospel in your marriage for your spouse, though. Scripture says that your home can be made holy by your example. Please keep that example up, okay? The, the other thing I want to say is to young people, those of you who are not married yet, can you hear me on this? Marry somebody with the same faith as yourself. Your home has a dramatically better chance of being happy and harmonious if you can just do that. And I know sometimes that girl is so fine, we'll just figure it out. I get you. I hear you. And ladies, I know sometimes you're thinking, dude's got bank. Money can figure it out. You know, we'll figure out the God thing. But, but I want to encourage you like this. That's a pipe dream. It's so much better that you marry somebody that you can love and trust completely and have this shared strong faith with work out the other stuff later. The strong part of this shared strong faith means this. It implies that faith is practiced regularly 
And it impacts the values and the choices and decisions you make on the everyday, from the little choices to the big ones. It's determined by that strength of faith. So if you're just this nominal kind of, yeah, I'm down with JC, I like the Christian thing. Oh, yeah, I'm in America, I must be Christian. <laughs> you know, I believe in God, I'll go to heaven one day, get my fire insurance card. <clears throat> that's not strong. That, that's play. And you're, you're not playing God, okay? Remember that whole thing about the people who disrespect God that I told you about a minute ago? Yeah, that ain't strong faith. That's fake faith or nominal faith. What we're talking about is faith that says, I'm willing to stake my decisions on on who this Jesus is and what he said. So if we are shared strong faith, which means believing in a higher power, the God, the, the God of the Bible is above myself. If you have that in your marriage, let me simply close by saying this. You have a vastly better chance of having a happy, harmonious home where you're mutually submitted to one another. You are mutually surrendering rights to sexuality, to finances, uh, to time, to loves, to passions, to one another. And in that environment, friends and neighbors, brothers and sisters, that's where you can have the high standard of a godly marriage and a godly home. Now, if I've made the case today, here's what I hope we can walk out of here saying, that we were going to see our marriages as God sees it and I'm going to be faithful to my spouse and to my God together. In other words, equally. That I love my God completely and I love my spouse sacrificially. What's mine belongs to her. That means my word, my body, my passions, my lusts, my desires, uh, my faithfulness belong to my wife. And the same thing is true of her to me. And in that kind of submission, we have the higher standard of a godly marriage. Let me ask-